0: I think today, we are spending a lot of time culturally asking ourselves a question that other generations might not have asked as often as we're asking it. We ask the question, what is real, what is true, quite a bit. We live as we know in an era of fake news. We might wonder whether or not there is a particular political party or funding group behind an ad or a show or something that we're watching. Uh, Many of us have uh, been tangled up in maybe a Venmo or a Chase Pay or a banking scam of some sort. If you've followed any of the news about Twitter these past few months, there's that coveted blue check mark That used to mean a a feed was authenticated if you were following the Chicago Transit Authority. If there was a blue check mark, somebody had made sure you were actually following the CTA. And now for about $8 a month, you can get a blue check mark. And so you can be the CTA or Beyonce or Pope Francis or whoever you want to be for $8 a month. Um, Overnight, almost every English teacher and history professor in the country has flipped out because of chat GPT. Is the essay that was just submitted really an essay that that kid wrote? College admissions counselors have asked that sort of question for a long time. Is the college essay that they're reading, was it actually authored by the student, or was there a paid professional, or a parent, or somebody else behind that essay? Maybe some of us have asked recently, how is 81-year-old Martha Stewart on the cover of Sports Illustrated looking that good? Is that a real photo? You have asked it this week. I know you have. Maybe if you're out there dating and you're on Bumble or another dating app, you're like, is the guy or gal behind that profile really who I'm going to meet when we meet up? These questions fuel, of course, the thrill of all of the true crime podcasts or shows like Inventing Anna or You, and we're wondering, who are those people? When are they gonna get caught? What's true? Now, it's interesting because while we are trying to discern what is true, a lot of us might find it increasingly difficult to prove who we actually are. Have you ever tried to log into an app or a website and forgot your password and found it really difficult to prove who you are? Maybe you get a text sent to your phone, but the text doesn't come, and you need to validate who you are, and then you're like, okay, well, I'll just do the security question route, but then the drop-down menu, and they ask, what is the make of your first car, and you can't remember, did I write Jeep? Did I write Jeep Wrangler? Did I write Red Jeep Wrangler? And then you're like, ah, just send me an email, but how many of us have more than one email address? And then you can't log into what you want to log into. How do I prove who I am? How do I prove that you or who you say you are, and on most days, we're just trying to log into an app or our banking. But what about that question when it connects with some of the bigger questions in life? Since the beginning of human history, people have been chasing religion. They've been asking the question, who is God? How do I know that the people who claim to be Christians are actually representing God? How do I know that what the church says is true is actually true? How do I know what to do? How am I supposed to live? How do I know that what the preacher says when they pop up on a Sunday morning, how do I know that that's accurate? What is true? What is authentic? What is real about God? Today we're gonna begin a new series. We're gonna spend the next couple weeks walking through what we're calling real The Search for Authentic Faith, a journey through the book of Galatians in search for an answer to this question. Halfway through the first century, Paul wrote the book of Galatians. He wrote it to a group of churches scattered throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. And the Apostle Paul is at this time one of the most prominent leaders in the church, but he never actually met the physical Jesus. So the Easter story, Good Friday, Easter, all of that happened before Paul shows up on the scene. He's not one of the original 12 disciples, but he quickly rises to a place of prominence in the early church. He goes on to then author some 13 books of the New Testament, and many of those books we have preached through or talked about here at church. And God used him to provide some of the most theologically rich and robust conversations about the Christian faith that we are in the church still reading to this day. Scholars suspect that Paul was not perhaps the easiest person to get along with. He was a bit quick tempered. There were conversations that happened throughout faith circles at that time that tell us the story of Paul getting tangled up with other leaders like Peter and Barnabas. And Paul came to the Christian faith from an incredibly violent past. So before Paul became a Christian, Paul was a Jewish man. Remember, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And so Paul, on behalf of the zealous Jewish community that he was a part of, was commissioned as an executioner, of people who had left the Jewish faith and converted to Christianity. So this is his life's work before he becomes a Christian himself. And so this past, his penchant for disagreement and division, the fact that he's not been with the original 12 at the very beginning, this is some of the backdrop to this letter. One other piece of helpful information before we start reading parts of this letter is that, as I said, Paul is part of a uh, group of Jewish uh, Jewish people at the very beginning. Then a lot of them convert to Christianity. So throughout the ancient Near East, you have all of these Christians with a Jewish background. Then at the same exact time, you have a ton of people who have no Jewish history or background whatsoever. They're called the Gentiles. And they start going to church and learning about Jesus. So you have these two groups of people, one who came from a very religious, cultural, social, ideological, religious past, and another group of folks who didn't have any of that experience at all. And what is happening is that the folks who converted to Christianity from Judaism want to take a ton of their rules with them. They want to follow Jesus. They want to worship and pray and go to church and do all of the things, but they also want to add all of the things that they brought from their Jewish faith with them. They want to keep kosher. They want to make sure everybody's eating the right things. They want any male who has converted to Christianity to get circumcised like they would have in the Jewish tradition. So you can imagine this is creating some issues and some barriers for the Gentile folks who are also converting into Christianity and all trying to exist in the same space together. And so all of that is happening and Paul writes this letter to this group of churches. And he says this, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me. So he's telling us who he is when he starts writing. And he says to all the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to him whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. So this is a pretty typical customary greeting that Paul would have provided in many of his letters. And what you might not know is that Paul usually goes on from here and spends a couple more lines talking about the great friendship he shared with some of the folks he's writing to. He talks about some of the community and connections they have in common. Maybe he mentions a friend they have in common. He goes on to layer effusive praise on them. And then he gets into the meat of the letter. It doesn't happen here in Galatians. He goes straight after it. It's almost a bit abrupt. I don't know if there's anybody in the room like this, but when I'm texting with people and they respond very abruptly to me, I wonder immediately what's wrong. I need um, a couple of, hey, how's it goings? And I need like an emoji or two to make sure that we're cool when you're asking me for something. So when my mom is like, where are you? What are you doing? What time are you coming over? And she says, nothing else. I start to freak out a little bit, and I'll call her, and I'm like, "Are we cool?" She's like, "What is your problem?" Yes, we're cool, and I'm like, "Well, I need a little like emoji after that that text that we're that we're good." Um, some of the guys in the room are less verbose in text than some of us as women in the room, and so are we. Are, is everything cool? There are no emojis in this letter. Paul does not care how they feel. He is not trying to reassure them or affirm a friendship. He is angry so he gives this little greeting and then he says this i am shocked now remember this is the group of jewish converts to christianity who are heavily influencing the church at the time i am shocked that you are returning away so soon from god who called you to himself through the loving mercy of christ you are following a different way that pretends to be the good news but it's not the good news at all you are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning christ And then he goes for it, he says, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preached to you. I say again what we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, he says, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people was my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So he's basically saying to them, I am stunned. I came to you in friendship. I, Paul, was here with you all in Galatia. I taught you what you need to do to have faith in Jesus and to live a life after God. And here you went and you added all this extra stuff to it. How did you ruin it so fast? How did you add layer upon layer upon layer upon layer to this thing that was never supposed to be as complicated and frustrating as you have now made it? Some of you might remember um, earlier this year or at the end of last year, I can't remember which, there was a lot of drama around the Taylor Swift concert tickets. How many of you have a kid going to the Taylor Swift concert? There was this sort of adolescent shriek that could be heard around the nation when um, Ticketmaster went down that day. And what happened eventually was a variety of conversations that uh, that, that, that made it all the way up to Congress about what are we allowed and not allowed to do, what are we allowed to layer on top of something as simple, seemingly simple, as a concert. And how do we deal with people who for their entire lives maybe have followed a band and would really love to go see their favorite artist but can't afford the ticket, can't spend eight hours in a virtual queue waiting for tickets to be released, and then after that pay for the venue fee and the taxes and the processing fee and everything else, and it brought a great question forward. How much stuff can you layer on before it gets too complicated and keeps the people who it was meant for out. Clearly, the Apostle Paul and Taylor Swift are two very different entities. But you get the picture. How complicated have we made this thing? How did it get like this? Who decides what the rules are when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to faith. And there's more to this chapter than we can pull apart on a Sunday morning. And like I said, we're going to talk about this the next couple weeks. And I'm not going to read everything else in this passage. But to point out a few other things, Paul continues on in this conversation. And he continues to prove to the authenticity of who he is and who God made him to be and compare that to all of the rumors and the chaos that's swirling around him. He's like, I want you to know, the gospel I preached isn't from human origin. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't receive it from anyone. It was received through a revelation by God. And he goes on, you've heard about my previous life, right? How I was this murderous person, and how in the world could I have gotten from murdering people for their faith to being one of the leaders of faith were it not for God's intervention in my life and he goes on and tells other bits of the story after three years he goes up to jerusalem and he talks about cephas who is peter that's that's the other name for peter and he wants them to know i only spent 15 days there and on and on and he talks about how he traveled to syria and sicilia and he it was unknown and he just unpacks this and he's trying to communicate to them there was no possible way I could have come to you with the stories I have and presented the version of God to you that I am without having an authentic face myself. So how dare you make it more complicated and add all of your baggage to it and thereby end up preventing other people from following Jesus themselves. Why does this conversation matter? At one level, you can say, well, why aren't we just eavesdropping on like a couple of warring factions from 2,000 years ago? Like, what, what is the relevancy of this conversation for us today? We still struggle today to answer these same questions. If that were not true, there, not, there would not be thousands, thousands of Christian denominations throughout the world. Thousands of expressions on what an authentic faith could be. Some of the most egregious crimes in human history and some of the most significant wars have been waged by people who believed they were defending their version of an authentic faith, what they believed about God. And over the course of human history, we have argued about how often we take communion, whether we baptize babies or adults. What do women get to do or not get to do in a church? How do we believe the world will end? What do we believe about heaven or hell? What do we believe about the Holy Spirit and prayer? And who's allowed or not allowed to teach about those things? Every one of these questions can be answered in dozens of ways. And that's just the doctrinal and theological stuff. What about the ideological questions that swirl around right now in our time? Which political party would Jesus be a part of? For which policy on immigration or crime do we advocate? Do we believe in private Christian education? Do we send our kids to public school? Do we homeschool our children? Is one of those expressions of education closer to what Jesus would do than another? And think back a couple months, how many religious people who claimed Christianity were arguing with each other about whether to wear a mask, whether to get vaccinated, what to do in a pandemic. Oh, by the way, what version of the Bible do we read? Because there's hundreds of those. What music do we listen to? Are we allowed to dance? Do we go to the Taylor Swift concert? In every single one of these categories, there can be people who make the case as to why their response to these questions would be the one Jesus gave. And Lamotte once wrote, everybody thinks their opinion is the right one. If they didn't, they would get a new one. And to be clear, holding different opinions on these things is okay. It is okay to disagree. We do not all have to agree if we love Jesus. What is not okay is when we say that those things must be followed in a particular way in order to have access to the love of God. When we layer those things on top of God and say, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to look, act, sound, vote, whatever it is, like this. That is the problem that Paul is getting after here. So I want to offer two thoughts on how to figure this out before we end our time together today. The first thing is, um, before I get into that, is that what I would really love to do as the preacher this morning is give you the answer to this question. I would love to say this is exactly what you need to do and how you need to do it, and you can walk out of here and not ever have to worry about this or wonder about this again. And yes, I've gone to divinity school and have a degree in this and whatnot, so yeah, I've got some good guesses as to what God, I think, is wanting to teach us through Paul's word here, But I, like all of you, exist at this one point in time in human history. The view we have of the world, after just the time that we we share in history, comes to us through our surroundings. I am a middle age, middle-class, stressed-out mom from the suburbs. So my view on this is coming through that lens. And your view on these things is coming through your lenses. So what is this passage, this letter, that is still in our scriptures. What does it say to us? And what I want to suggest is it tells us to look for two different things when we're trying to decide what is authentic and what is real. The first, and this comes to us from the life of Paul, ask yourself the question, is the story I'm telling others or the story I've been told about who God is, is that authentic? or real, is the person who's telling me what to do and how to believe, or are, are the things I'm saying to others, are they from God, are they actually true experiences that you've had with God, or, they, or are they agendized? Are they pointing to another group or another way of living that isn't actually Christian? The great thing about Paul's letters and why people listened to Paul, why we still read him today, is he had this miraculous, beautiful story. He went from being that murderer to a conversion and an experience that opened him up to the reality of God. He tells his story. You can find it if you wanna go home this afternoon. You can read it in Acts chapter nine. Sometime this week you can read that. It's a great story. Scripture's filled with other people telling stories. In Hebrews 11, there's a list of heroes like Noah and Adam and Isaac and Joseph. John the Baptist had this great story. He comes tumbling out of the wilderness with like crazy hair, and it says he's eating locusts and honey, and he's got like this rope tied around his belt, and he sounds like this absolutely wild man. He had a great story. And when asked to speak, he says, you know what, someone else is coming after me. One is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Everything about him pointed to the love of Jesus who was coming after him. Now, lest you think that you need to leave here today and go find some dramatic conversion story, that is not it. I have spent years working... um, volunteering with our high school students here. And it's funny, whenever you ask a high school student, a lot of them, like, what is your story? They're like, "Mm -hmm," you know, which is very teenager, right? But you're like, push a little more, like, do you want to tell us about God? How did you experience God? I don't know. Like, I wasn't a drug addict in LA before I got here. I don't know if I have a story. And those stories are beautiful and wonderful, and those dramatic conversions are true, and we should celebrate them. But most of us wake up every day and day after day after day take a faithful journey through life. And every single day we add pages to our story. A page where we chose to be kind instead of angry. A page where we dared to reach out to someone and help instead of walking past. A page where we learned how to pray Maybe a page when we were younger, and we remember um, our confirmation or or, or an event like that, and we just add these pages to it, and over a lifetime, it becomes a beautiful story. Lord knows the world has enough grandiosity in it right now, enough crazy stories, and you can watch them all over TikTok or do whatever you want to do. We don't need more crazy stories. What we need are the stories of people who day after day have faithfully followed God, humbly- and quietly honored the call of God on their life. And they have a story to tell. And the story doesn't point to them, or how great they are, or all of the things they've supported, or the groups of people they're affiliated with. It points to the love of God, being real, and the life of an ordinary person. That is the first thing. What is the story? If you're looking for what is true, find the true story. Find the humble, quiet people that don't need to tell you everything that ever was. Follow the people who have an actual hard, beautiful conversion story. What do they believe? And what has God done with them? And does that story point to something other than God? If it does, I wouldn't trust it. If it points to God, I would. Second thing is simplicity. Follow someone who preaches a simple gospel. Notice I did not say easy. Christianity, Christian faith, is not easy. And anybody who markets to you as if it was is not authentic. I mean, on the one hand, in Romans 10, when Paul writes another letter, he says this. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So, yeah, it's like one sentence. It's pretty simple. On the other hand, in Luke 9, Jesus talks about how hard this is. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily, daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their very soul? A simple faith, but is the most profound shaper and the most challenging thing we have in our lives. Following Jesus is hard enough on its own without adding layer and layer and layer of complexity to it that keeps other people out. It is hard enough to pray and figure that out on our own, let alone be told by somebody else you're doing it wrong. Use this word instead of that word. Isn't enough to just pray, it is. Church is hard enough on its own without wondering, What do I wear, where do I go, where do I sit, am I saying the right things, am I standing up, am I sitting down, do we take communion, what do we do? This is a confusing place if you've never been here before. This is confusing if you've been here before. The number of people who are like, I didn't know we did that, and I'm on staff and sometimes I'm like, I didn't know we did that either. Why do we make it harder than it has to be to find our way through faith? Is the story that is being told authentic and real? And is the faith message you are getting simple enough to understand on its own? That's why John 3.16 is held up on a poster at every sporting event. Why? Because it's the easiest passage, it's the easiest grab. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is the message. It's simple, but yet it requires everything of us. So if you can find those things, chances are you are moving then with people who are on a journey of authentic faith and are existing in a space of authentic faith yourself. I'm going to just close with um, a story many of you might have remembered. Um, How many of you read The Velveteen Rabbit at some point in your life? probably have a dog-eared old copy of that somewhere in your house. Um, Last year in 2022 was the 100-year anniversary of that book, Marjorie Williams Bianco. It's funny because one of the dominating questions in that book is very simple, it's this question, how do I know if I'm real? Here we are 100 years later after that book and we're still asking of course that question. And if you're not familiar with the story, very quickly, it is the story of a velveteen rabbit who is gifted to a boy at Christmas and the rabbit gets thrown into the toy cupboard with all of the other toys, and much like Toy Story, the toys chat with each other and have this sort of life beyond the purview of the boy. And over time, the rabbit keeps asking, how do I know I'm real? Because the rabbit is new, but the rabbit isn't as fancy as all the other toys in the cupboard. And there's a lot of toys that are shinier, that look down on the rabbit or tell the rabbit, these are the rules and this is what you need to do and you won't matter until you do these things. And there's also this old horse toy in the cupboard. It's called the skin horse and it is the oldest toy in the cupboard. It is the most loved at one point in time and now seems to be a little bit off to the side. And the rabbit befriends the horse. And the rabbit says, how will I know when I'm real? How will I know when something real has happened to me? And the horse says, real isn't how you are made, it's the thing that happens to you. It doesn't happen all at once, you become. It takes a long time, that's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily, or have sharp edges, or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. Once you are real, the horse says, you can't become unreal, because it lasts for always. Here's the thing, we are real because we are loved by God. And some of us feel pretty shabby and like the fuzz has been worn off and maybe we feel a little loose in the joints because, let's admit it, life is not easy. But we are loved and we will never become unreal. That will never not be true. So we have that. We have that. So the question then becomes, what do we do with our story of that God who loves us. How do we help other people know they are real? They are loved. And maybe the things in their life have worn them bare, but they're still loved. And how then do we take that story, that true story, and keep it simple so that Christianity and the faith we have is a place that welcomes people in and loves them until the shine wears off, and then loves them more. That is the message Paul is getting at here. He's saying, what is real? You are real, I am real, Paul says, I am loved by God so much that I can write this letter. Now, let's figure out why it has gotten so tangled up, and we're gonna keep moving through that part of this story for the next couple weeks, amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, the scripture that we get to read this week and next. Thank you for the stories that we have. Thank you for the um, chance we have to be together, to wonder what is real. And we pray that you would teach us the answers to those things. Help us be authentic in who we are. Help us love well and help us represent you with an authentic, real faith. In Jesus' name, everyone together said amen.